Good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to this session about simulations, and I promise you that we'll uh, have you to lunch on time at 1 o'clock. Uh, before we get to the particular project examples for this session, I wanted to make a few points about simulations, what they are, and why we use them. Uh, it turns out we actually have a long history of doing simulations since the very start of our center. Uh, some of the people in the room, including Ian Lapp in the back, uh, are aware that we've worked on projects such as the Heart Simulator from the medical school at Beville and the School of Public Health, as well as Relief Sim with uh, Ron Waldman and Forced Migrations. Uh, in all these situations, uh, we found simulations to be an effective strategy when uh, it's important that the instructor uh, integrate a bunch of disparate topics uh, and gives students a chance to have to prioritize and make decisions about those disparate topics uh, in the work of the class and in the class assignments. So when uh, John mentioned the design spiral, when we're studying uh, the course curriculum and context uh, and what the challenges are in your curriculum, uh, when I hear uh, people uh, teaching a very broad, a broad set of disparate topics, uh, for example, today we're going to look at something in environmental science that has to do with uh, geology, chemistry, health, and civics. Uh, when those topics are all together in one class, it's often hard for students to think about those things at, together in any capacity. And so it's helpful uh, to uh, use a simulation strategy to try to affect that with students. Uh, another thing that's nice for uh, the use of simulations is when you have uh, some kind of system of concepts that are very deliberately linked together and you want your uh, students to have to learn that model uh, by manipulating parameters to see that you know, when one variable goes up, another variable goes down, uh, for example. Uh, I think that the uh, simulations has a lot of definitions uh, for a lot of different people. When we talk about simulations, uh, we're talking about some kind of model. It could be a data model. Uh, in one case, we'll have a, a contamination field uh, that students will be exploring. And, uh, or it could also be a set of dynamic algorithms that change based on the student's input. Uh, but that model is then surrounded by some kind of narrative that has a role for the students to play and some kind of goal or task that they're supposed to carry out on that model. So that's our definition of simulation. And I think uh, you'll see two you know, somewhat different examples where uh, in one case we have introductory students who are really trying to uh, use uh, a story to, to get them into the science, and another case, uh, a simulation in sustainable development where uh, the goal is really to have the students playing it multiple times and layering their understanding of all the complexities uh, by playing it many, many times over. Um, simulations aren't all uh, great when it comes to their development. Uh, I think they're one of the harder project types uh, for our center and our faculty partners to develop. They require a big upfront commitment uh, the two examples today, Jeffrey Sachs' team at the Earth Institute as well as Peter Bauer's team at Barnard College both put in an enormous amount of time on their projects, uh, organizing the content, thinking about the model they wanted to use and, and the strategies that they wanted to put into the, into the classroom. Uh, when you set up a simulation, you have to create uh, multiple paths for students to work through. It's not uh, a set path that everyone followed, so uh, it suggests that uh, there's a lot more upfront work in order to get that created. Uh, with our two examples today, Brownfield Ashing, uh, the environmental simulation, that's been going on for nine years now. It happens to have a, a grant from the National Science Foundation uh, that we're uh, testing its effectiveness and adaptation uh, feasibility at some other schools. Uh, so we've done substantial evaluation and iteration on that project over time. You'll see the third version of that tool today uh, when Alice Cox steps up here. Uh, and then Rob Garfield will show the Millennium Village simulation, which is uh, just in its first year. Uh, we're just using it for the first time right now. Uh, and so uh, we're still experimenting with the strategies involved with that particular course uh, and the use of the simulation. Uh, 
And I should point out that uh, one of the other challenges besides the upfront development effort is that you really need, uh, as a faculty member, to commit to an inquiry-based approach with your students. Uh, there's a lot of lecturing going on. John Zimmerman made the point earlier that uh, we're trying to get to more active uh, curricula, more active uh, work for students to complete, and simulations really demand that. Students are going to want to explore, forge their own path, do their own exploring with these tools, and you as a faculty member, if you're not used to that kind of strategy, are going to have to adapt. Uh, and it will take effort and, and thinking on your part, and, and we're happy to help you do that. So now I think uh, the thing to do is to introduce Alice Cox, who's going to come up and demonstrate Brownfield Action. Again, this has been a nine-year project uh, for students at Barnard College. So I'm Alice. I'm an educational technologist, and I primarily work with science faculty on technology projects for their classrooms, and I'm the project manager of Brownfield Action. Great, so um, as Ryan mentioned, Brownfield Action is an NSF-funded web-based environmental science simulation. It was developed in collaboration with Peter Bauer at Barnard College about nine years ago. Um, it was based on a card-based game, which was very much like a board game that the students would play in labs um, called Groundwater Project. Um, it's an integral part of um, Dr. Bauer's introduction to environmental science. Um, this is a year-long lecture-based course with weekly labs. Students um, go to lab three hours a week. And um, approximately 100 students take the course to fulfill their science requirement every year. And the simulation is essentially the laboratory component for the second semester labs. So what is Groundflood Action? It's a simulated environment where students investigate groundwater contamination in a virtual town. And over the course of the semester, the students break up into teams of two and role play as environmental science consultants under contract with a fixed budget um, hired by a real estate developer to investigate a potential contamination at an uh, um, abandoned factory site in this virtual town called Moraine, and I have it highlighted right there. So to draw them into the simulation and introduce the story and the problem, they review a video, a video of an interview with the um, real estate developer from a local Moraine cable access news show, which I'll just play really briefly. Um, and this is an example of um, what the whole team does. Um, we had um, the video team produce this. Two questions. When is construction going to begin, and how long is this going to take? We'd like to begin as soon as possible, but as you know, new state and federal law uh, make Malls R Us responsible for any contamination uh, on the property. If we own the property, we own the pollution on the property and the financial responsibility for cleaning it up. So it's in our self-interest to make sure that the property is free and clear of any contamination. So we're uh, presently negotiating a contract with an environmental consulting firm to perform a phase one environmental site assessment. And once that's completed and we're sure that the property is free and clear of any pollution that we didn't create, uh, we'll uh, be off and running and ready to begin construction as soon as we get the approvals and uh, permits from the uh, Township of Moraine. So that basically introduces the problem and the story to the students. Um, Within the simulation, they can visit over 25 locations and interview up to 45 characters. Um, characters include um, town residents, business owners, and government officials, um, each of whom have some knowledge about the details and story behind the contamination um, at the abandoned factory. 
who's at Kilroy's Bar. This is Jack Kilroy, um, former, former um, police officer of Marine, who now owns the bar. Hello, I'm Jack Kilroy. So there is embedded, Welcome to Kilroy's Bar. There is embedded video. Not all um, characters respond in video. Um, students have a, a slate of questions they can ask each of the characters. Here's one question. What was the nature of your employment or professional dealings with self Loon Inc.? I was chief of police by the time the property was bought and the factory was being built and in operation. I remember during the construction in 1974-75, there were really a lot of problems. In order to finish all the buildings on time, they left some of the old fallow structures in place. So um, you can see that the, the narrative that's built into the simulation is very complicated. Um, some characters have other interests at stake, so they don't exactly tell the truth, or, or they tell their version of what they think happened at the factory. Um, one of the th since the students have a fixed budget, they have to strategize um, on who to talk to and take detailed notes. It costs money each time they visit each of these locations, and it costs money to ask questions. They also go around the town collecting um, important documents for their investigation, which they have to turn in um, along with a report at the end of the semester. And through this, they gain skills in uh, site history and investigation. So um, in the real world, you do this historical work and interviewing first in order to save money on expensive um, scientific tests and analysis. Um, Another part of brownfield action, the simulation has a whole suite of um, testing tools. Um, so um, this is where students can mine the extensive geological, chemical, and hydro hydrological data in the sim um, in order to explore the groundwater systems of the town. Um, we have drilling tools, excavation, ground penetrating, radar, um, topo survey tools. These are all tools that students learn about in lecture. Um, uh, an example of how concepts learned in lecture are applied in this real-world context um, using this simulation is um, students learn in lecture that the geological makeup of the subsurface reflects the, the, the very much follows the topography of the land surface and with this follows um, the water table and the direction of flow groundwater beneath the town um, that it depends on the slope of the landscape. In labs, um, they do. They use the topo. One of the lab in one of the labs, they use this topo survey tool to collect surface elevation values across the whole town, which I'll just show you in a second. And from this, they collect data points and construct these contour maps, which Ryan is holding up. This is an example of student work. They collect the data through um, the sim and basically plot points on the map and learn how to construct um, contour maps. So, thanks. So one thing I'll do here is, is run a topo survey test. Um, I'll select a point on the map you see there and perform the test and it results the surface elevation value. So students will, will select some points, collect their data, write it on the map, and then um, learn how to construct these contour maps. Um, from this work, students um, eventually hypothesize about the flow of the contamination, the supposed contamination, um, to the town well from the factory site, and they are able to design some sort of strategy um, for running more expensive tests 
such as drilling and soil chemical tests for certain types of contaminants um, based on um, this type of analysis. Um, so as I mentioned um, at the end of the semester, um, their final report is uh, modeled after industry standard report called um, an environmental site assessment. Um, and they follow these procedures and collect all of their data, including um, historical interviewing data and also their um, scientific data, and basically report back to Seymour Buckmeister um, whether or not he should buy the property, whether or not there is <coughs> contamination there, and basically make recommendations on how to proceed. Um, so even though this project has been going on for nine years, we've been running ongoing evaluations with a third-party evaluator. And um, as Ryan mentioned, this is also being used in other courses um, across the Northeast, um, actually in upper-level hydrology courses as well. Um, so it's, it's been a great simulation for both an introductory class setting and also for more advanced um, courses. One of the things I like the best about this project is that uh, while it's, uh, it's designed for non-majors, so it's a course of students who are uh, not intending to be scientists by any means, uh, the story really hooks them in and gives them a reason to need to know the science. And Peter's goal as the instructor is not so much to train them to be environmental investigators as much as it is to convince them that environmental science matters in their life and that as citizens, no matter what their profession, uh, they're going to have to do some kind of uh, decision-making in their life where they're going to be paying attention to these kind of environmental issues and just having the experience of seeing how scientific data relates to real things happening in real towns uh, is something that most of the students can really latch onto. And, uh, some of our previous eval work has shown that and we're continuing to look for ways to uh, figure out how to make that tool work in uh, other contexts as Alice was describing now that other schools are beginning to adapt it for their own purposes. So now the second example, which uh, Rob's going to show, is uh, Millennium Village Simulation. This is a uh, collaboration with the Earth Institute and Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, and as you'll see, uh, some commonalities in terms of its goals to integrate disparate topics, but uh, a different methodology in terms of how the students actually use it. Uh, well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Alice. Um, can you all hear me back in the back? Excellent. Um, well, as Ryan said, uh, the Millennium Village simulation was created for Professor Jeffrey Sachs's Challenges of Sustainable Development class. Um, and this class typically sports about 140 students um, per class. Um, the course also covers a large number of sub-disciplines as it's a sustainable development class. Uh, some of these sub-disciplines are agronomy, macro and microeconomics, climatology, epidemiology, family planning, etc., etc. Um, so there's a lot that's covered, and there are no prereqs for the course. So we actually have a broad spectrum of students attending with uh, varying levels of experience with the subject matter, um, and with uh, you know. Uh, with schooling at the higher level itself. Um, I'd say that the student population in the class is about evenly distributed over freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior. But we actually this year have five graduate students in the class as well. So that poses some interesting problems um, for an instructor. Uh, 
the instructor and the TAs need to play a balancing act um, between delving deeply into the many disparate disciplines of the course, um, keeping students on a level playing field, and synthesizing all the dis these disparate sub-disciplines in an intelligible way. And in fact, in the past, uh, prior to this year, um, a common student criticism of the class during the evaluation time was that uh, they thought each module, each particular discipline was, was treated well, but there was, wasn't much of a synthesis of all the disciplines together. And that's actually something that Professor Sachs really wants to teach. Um, so we developed a simulation which actually takes all of those disciplines and puts them together and allows them to interrelate so that can, students can actually see the complex relationships between the sustainable disciplines and explore them in a holistic fashion. Um, the simulation is given to students at the beginning of the semester and as Ryan said, they are encouraged to use it over and over again. Um, playing a full session of, surviving a full session of the Millennium Village simulation can take anywhere from, I would say, an hour to three hours, uh, depending on how, uh, how used to the system you are. Um, simulation assignments, which I'll go into in a little more detail uh, in a few minutes, are given, turned in, and discussed in section where student population is around 25 to 30 students with one TA. So there's a little bit more of a chance for them to discuss what happens in the simulation during section. The way the class is set up is there's two lectures a week and one section. Um, so as the semester proceeds, students are exposed to more and more material through the lectures and readings. This material in turn reveals more and more aspects of the simulated environment. Um, enabling students to apply new strategies to understand the systems in place in a deeper way. Um, so let's go to the videotape, as Warner Wolf used to say. Um, this is the sim. This is the, uh, the interface for the sim. You, as a player, student, user, um, are placed initially in the perspective of a two-person family. And here are your two family members, Kojo and Fatu. Um, Kojo and Fatu can each work a certain number of hours a day, and this is one of the key decision points for students in the simulation. Um, we're setting it here at 12. Um, it's significant, I'll show you in a second why. Um, but this can be adjusted as time goes on, depending on what happens in the simulation. Um, one thing that you'll do every turn of the simulation is you'll allocate these hours to various activities. Uh, one of the activities that you can engage in is farming, uh, fishing, fuel wood collection, water collection, and small business. If you do choose to farm, you have a choice between two different crops. Um, now one of the things that we were trying to show here was that a, a family in a small village in Africa um, experiencing extreme poverty, which is Extreme poverty is a condition of degenerative poverty. It means that, that uh, pe people in, in that situation are unable to, actually physically unable to pull themselves out of a poverty trap without outside intervention. Um, 
one of the issues involved for them is optimizing their crops um, and deciding when to plant a cash crop, cotton, or a um, subsistence crop. I'm just going to show you a little bit about um, how you might go ahead and use the simulation. Um, first off, I'm going to put, I'm going to decide to farm. I'm going to put a few hours a day in here. And you'll notice that there are 24 hours to allocate. That's because you have two people working, each working 12 hours a day. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of fishing. I'm going to collect some fuel wood. Let's take this down an hour. And I'm going to do a little bit of water collection. Now, why did I choose these things? Well, there are three basic needs in the simulation. One is food, raw food. Another is cooking fuel so that you can cook that food and eat it. And the third is water itself, um, probably the most important thing. So um, once you select to make these decisions, then you go up here and you hit this end turn button. What the end turn button does is it pushes time ahead six months. And it's as if you, you worked these types of hours for six months for a full planning season. So I'm going to go ahead and click that and see what my decisions uh, produced. Once you click that, you get an end of season report. The left side of this report shows me, it announces to me that subsistence was met here. So I actually got collected enough raw food and cooking fuel to uh, make it through uh, the next six months, but I didn't collect enough water. Um, it also shows me how much I actually made, so if a student wanted to try to figure out how many hours to put in, etc., start thinking about what the model is behind the simulation, they can use these numbers to sort of backtrack through that. I see that I used all the water that I collected, which makes sense. Um, and I also collected a huge amount of wood here and only used a portion of it. So, what can, I, uh, what can I basically uh, conclude from that? That I didn't work hard enough on water collection, and I probably worked too hard collecting fuel wood. So the next turn, I'm going to go in. I'm going to say, OK, I'm going to spend a lot less time on collecting fuel wood, and I know I'm going to have to spend more time on collecting water, so we'll see what happens there. And I still have an extra hour in here, so why not farm more? Go up here, click the end turn button. And this looks a lot better. There's less red in the left-hand column. Subsistence was met. I made enough. Um, I collected enough maize and fish. I collected enough water, perhaps a little too much. I looked good on the food. And I was able to sell some of my excess. Uh, food. Okay, so once I sell my excess food, what happens to it? Well, I've made decisions for my family so far, and that's the perspective that I've had. Um, and I've collected a little bit of cash uh, for my family. It's 2,443.9 CFA. Um, CFA is uh, French African currency. Um, 
well, this money now is mine. It's in my mattress or wherever. Um, what can I do with this? Well, they, we, we implemented a number of different um, family improvements or interventions is another word for them. Um, you can buy, once you have enough money, it doesn't look like I have, I have enough for this, a bed net, um, which is, um, a, you know, clearly, uh, it, bed nets kill mos malaria uh, carrying mosquitoes, so it's proof against malaria. Um, I can improve the wood stove that I'm using, uh, presumably to use less wood, so I have to spend less time collecting wood. Or I can move up to a propane stove and start buying propane. Uh, fertilizer increases um, uh, agricultural yields, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that you might have noticed when I first started, I allocated this, this uh, my time here, is that I decided to grow four plots of maize. And one of the reasons is that if I tried to grow cotton, early on, which is the cash crop, I would find that transportation costs to ship that cotton are far too expensive to begin with. But if I go into the village actions section here, and um, I, I notice that I can actually buy improvements for the whole village. And now this, this money comes from a village fund which is increased by taxing. People, and that taxes people's surplus. So that money that I made early on, I could have taxed a portion of this, would have gone into a village fund, and from that fund I would be able to potentially purchase uh, village improvements. One of the key improvements is to, to purchase a paved road. The paved road makes lowest transportation costs, so I could convert them into a, a uh, cash crop growing system and potentially pull myself out of poverty. Um, some of the simulation assignments that we came up with for uh, the MV Sim um, involve asking students to play through the simulation using different strategies um, and observing the results. Uh, for example, playing as a fisherman or a cash crop farmer and seeing how well you did with that. Um, other assignments ask the students to describe the actual models operating behind the scenes. Um, for example, how maize yield is calculated. Um, it's not as simple as how many hours I put in. Um, it also has to do with my health, um, my general productivity, even my education level. Um, each assignment, however, uh, foregrounds analysis over outcome, and I think this is a really key thing about simulations in general. Um, the students are graded on not how well they do within the simulation, but how well they understand what happened when they did what they did. Um, a conclusion, somebody who goes through the simulation and actually perishes within five years might have learned more than somebody who's gone, got through 50 years accidentally. Um, and so that's a key element of this, um, is that do students understand what actually happened, what they did? Um, can they draw connections between the curriculum that they're learning and, and what happened in the simulation? Um, I wanted to say also that with the MV Sim, students are um, expected by the end to 
to be able to know things like what I was saying, the equation that governs the output of maze in a given turn, the health function, as I was saying before. Um, but they should also understand, come out of this and understand how difficult it is for families in extreme poverty situations to nearly survive. Um, they should also understand how difficult decisions become um, in a system where actual, actually seemingly random events such as droughts and epidemics can ruin even their best laid plans. Um, and finally, to tie this all together, they should be able by the end of the term to appreciate the fact that the solution to extreme poverty is multifaceted and it requires a suite of strategies and efforts to effect. Um, and I think that should do it. <laughs>